And so we come to this really kind of invisible line of man's free will and God's sovereignty. And prayer is really one of those places where that is highlighted. Hello, friends, and welcome. The last few podcasts, we've been talking about prayer and how to always get what you pray for. And I talked about um, praying in faith means that we're praying uh, based on the things that God has spoken because faith comes from God's word. So as uh, Andrew Womack says it, if God's grace has not provided it, your faith cannot lay hold of it. So we come to this place of prayer as a response to what God wants to do and us giving God permission to work in our lives and to work in the realm of influence in which we live. And some people get uncomfortable with the idea that God would somehow need our permission to do anything. But in fact, God has chosen to honor us and God honors the decisions that we make and God gives us sovereignty over our own bodies uh, and our own wills and our own hearts so that God does not force himself upon us. God wants everyone to be saved. God wants everyone to have abundant life. But God allows us to make choices. There's a really interesting Bible verse in John 7, 1. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, that's really interesting to me because Jesus wouldn't go where he wasn't welcomed. So Jesus goes where, where he's welcome. Jesus goes to the people who welcome him. Doesn't mean that he didn't love the people of Judea. He didn't, it's not that he didn't want to go to Judea, but there were people there who were going to kill him. There were people there who were hostile to him, so he didn't go there. So I think that's an interesting commentary uh, kind of on this tension between free will, God's sovereignty, what Jesus wanted, and what the people wanted. And amazingly, God defers to, to people. I mean, it's astonishing. But this is how kind our God is, that he honors our choices. And so we come to this really kind of invisible line of man's free will and God's sovereignty. And prayer is really one of those places where that is highlighted. Because uh, here we have prayer based upon the word of God, that we, we can't be praying in faith if it's not something that God has spoken. And we can't be praying in Jesus' name if we're not praying according to the nature of of Jesus. And yet, at the same time, if we don't pray at all, we can expect that God is not going to move in our midst. James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Acts 2, 21 says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if we don't call upon the name of the Lord, we're not going to be saved. So, God has already made the provision for every single human being to be saved, but only those who call upon his name, only those who put their faith in Jesus are going to be saved. And when I say saved, I mean it in the Greek sozo sense of the word, not just going to heaven when you die, but experiencing the rule and reign and abundant life of Jesus Christ starting right now. But nevertheless, there is this invisible line between man's free will and God's sovereignty. And I found this tension summarized really nicely in a book called Systematic Theology, A Compendium and Commonplace, Volume 1, by Augustus Hopkins Strong, which was published in 1907. And he quotes a few other people to uh, bring some perspective to this. He quotes a Dr. Duray, quote, The way of life has two fences, 
There's an Arminian fence to keep us out of fatalism, and there's a Calvinistic fence to keep us out of Pelagianism. And let me just stop for a second. I'm not quoting anymore. Pelagianism is a heresy that teaches that original sin did not taint human nature and human beings can still achieve perfection without God's grace. Okay, back to the quote. So there's an Arminian fence to keep us out of fatalism and there's a Calvinistic fence to keep us out of Pelagianism. Some good brethren like to walk on the fences, but it is hard in that way to keep one's balance. And it is needless, for there's plenty of room between the fences. For my part, I prefer to walk in the road. Then he quotes Archibald Alexander. Calvinism is the broadest of systems. It regards the divine sovereignty and the freedom of the human will as two sides of a roof, which come together at a ridgepole above the clouds. Calvinism accepts both truths. A system which denies either one of the two has only half a roof over its head. And then he goes on to quote Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, The system of truth revealed in the scriptures is not simply one straight line, but two, and no man will ever get a right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at the two lines at once. These two facts, a divine sovereignty and human freedom, are parallel lines. I cannot make them unite, but you cannot make them cross each other. He quotes also John A. Brodus, You can see only two sides of a building at once. If you go around it, you see two different sides, but the first two are hidden. This is true if you are on the ground. But if you get up on the roof or in a balloon, you can see that there are four sides, and you can see them all together. So our finite minds can take in sovereignty and freedom alternately, but not simultaneously. God from above can see them both. And from heaven, we too may be able to look down and see. So those were, you know, four different theologians quoted by a fifth theologian. And I think it just offers some perspective that basically there are these two truths that we have to hold in tension with one another, that we accept both as being true. And yet from our perspective, we can't see exactly how they intersect. So basically, as my friend Yusuf Abinar said, there are two sides to a roof and these two sides of a roof come together somewhere way over our heads. And um, I think we kind of have to live with that tension. Having said that, I see a lot more emphasis in the Christians that I'm around in a fatalistic approach to life, that when something bad happens, it was God's will, and we don't know why, um, but you know, God knows what he's doing. And for most of my life, I have not spent too much time around believers who emphasize more the fallenness of the world and the brokenness of the world in which we live in. And I think the, the problem I have with that is if you go too far down that road, you end up attributing evil to God. So when somebody gets murdered and they say, oh, well, just God's, God's sovereign plan, God's will, we can't understand it. And we end up attributing sin to God. So I don't really like the statement, God is in control. It's not a biblical statement. You can't find that statement in the Bible. I don't like this statement, everything happens for a reason. Also, not a Bible verse. Uh, this too shall pass. Uh, not in the Bible. Not a Bible verse. So I think it's much better to understand sovereignty as the dictionary defines it, as supreme power or authority or the authority of a state to govern itself. That God is 
no one tells God what to do, that God is supreme, he has supreme power and authority, but that God is sovereign does not mean that he is dictating every single thing that happens on the earth, because Psalm 115 verse 16 says, the earth he has given to the children of man. So the the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So God owns it all, but he has given dominion, he has given authority to make decisions on the earth to mankind. Mankind lost that authority and came under the power of the devil. That's why that's one of the greatest injustices that if you listen to the podcast on holiness as the pursuit of justice, one of the greatest injustices in the world is that man is under the dominion of a fallen angel. So Christ, when he came, he defeated sin, he defeated the devil, and then he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So now we have this clash of kingdoms. The rightful king is Jesus Christ, and those who want to live under his reign come under the legitimate rule of heaven. The legitimate owner of the earth is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the legitimate ruler. But for the time being, there's still an opposing kingdom operating on the earth, and the kingdom of darkness is still operating on the earth. In fact, 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul calls the devil the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and that he has blinded the minds of the believers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Now, God has already disarmed the devil. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is, in Jesus Christ, God disarmed the spiritual powers of darkness that stood against humanity. So all of their weapons of deception, temptation, intimidation, God completely disarmed them through what Jesus did on the cross. Leading up to the cross, in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the judgment of the world was laid upon Jesus, and through the cross, God disarmed the powers in the spiritual realm. So there's no longer any reason for mankind to be under the oppression of the devil. Other than that, Humanity still chooses to rebel against God and still chooses to give Satan power in their lives by cooperating with him, by believing his lies, by uh, falling for his temptations, by being intimidated by the devil. But Christ has already defeated all the powers of darkness, and the church is his body on the earth. The government of God, the kingdom of God, rest on the shoulders of Jesus, according to Isaiah chapter 9. And we are his body. We are the church. We are to administrate the kingdom of God. And that is our function in prayer. Now, that was a bit of a lengthy explanation, but it's important to understand that there are two kingdoms at war on the earth right now. A legitimate kingdom of God that's taking over the earth slowly but surely, century by century, and a kingdom of darkness that is resisting the kingdom of God, that is trying to blind men's eyes, that is trying to tempt men into sin, that's trying to continue to let men live in rebellion against God. You know, Satan cannot hurt God, but Satan is wanting to hurt the things that God loves. Satan is, uh, he steals, he kills, and he destroys. He's a thief, he's a liar, and his goal is to destroy the creation that God loves. And so we have these two warring kingdoms 
that are clashing in front of our eyes here on the earth. Not only that, but we also still have man's free will. People are still free. God is still honoring human beings. And I think sometimes we have difficulty accepting that at a macro level because we want to believe that God is sovereignly in charge of everything that's happening, or, or some believers find great comfort in that. And so it's a, it's a frightening thought for them to think that God is not controlling every single thing that happens. Yet, those same believers would never say that it was God who made them sin. You know, the, when we have a shortcoming in our own life, when we commit a sin, most people would never say, oh, well, that was the sovereignty of God. God was just leading me in that thing. And yet, when sin, the effects of sin are played out at a macro level, at a mass level, sometimes those very same people will say, oh, well, it's, you know, this is just God's plans, God's sovereignty, coronavirus, you know, famine, hurricanes, tornadoes, all these things. These are all symptoms of a world that has been cursed by sin. Now, can God work despite these things? Can God work in the midst of these things? Of course. And that's the assurance we have in Romans chapter 8, that all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That, um, you know, as Dallas Willard writes, no irreparable harm befalls the life of the believer. So yes, God can work through anything to bring about good in the life of his children. But it's really a mistake and it's really dangerous, in my opinion, to attribute those things to God because I believe it confuses our hearts. Like we want to trust God as believers. Our heart wants to trust God. But if you think that God is the one giving children cancer or that God is the one, you know, sending tsunamis to wipe out poor villages on the coast of Thailand, you're going to have some questions and your heart is going to be confused. But if we realize that God is honoring humanity from the beginning of creation, God has given this planet to mankind and has done nothing but extend kindness and mercy and grace toward humanity, even in his judgment, then we begin to see, oh, I see God has done everything for us. God is reaching out to us over and over and over again. And it's human beings who continue to resist the will of God and continue to allow the powers of darkness to wreak havoc, to bring pain and suffering and brokenness to the world. So as I mentioned before, God is in control. That is not a Bible verse. That phrase is not in the Bible. What is in the Bible are phrases like this, make the best use of time because the days are evil. That's Ephesians 5.16. So what's it mean to say that the days are evil? Well, basically, we still live in a time where Jesus Christ is not reigning on the earth perfectly. A garden left to its own will, will just grow weeds The natural state of things is decay and entropy. There is still brokenness in this world. The effects of sin are still impacting our world. Here's another phrase that is in the Bible, Matthew 11, 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, I don't believe that's talking about acting in physical violence toward other human beings, but I do believe Jesus is saying there has to be some serious violence perpetrated by those who want to enter into the kingdom. That there, there's a, this violent act of dying to ourselves. There's this violent act of putting ourselves down so that we can serve others, so that Jesus becomes the center of our world 
we become committed to loving and serving other human beings and not just pursuing our own self-interest. And that is not an easy thing to do. It takes effort. It, there's this very proactive element of seeking God's kingdom. And again, it goes back to this balance between God's sovereignty and our free will, that God has chosen us, that God elected us, that there was nothing we could do to make ourselves more attractive to God. It was simply his kindness, his grace, his goodness. And now yet, because he has chosen us, there is this wholehearted surrender, this wholehearted pursuit where Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brother affection and brotherly affection with love. So there's this exhortation in the scriptures that we press in, that we make every effort, not as an attempt to earn God's grace, but as a response to God's grace that has been freely given to us. And so coming back now to prayer, Prayer is the primary place where we lay hold of the kingdom. And if you believe that uh, God's will is just going to unfold automatically, chances are you will miss the opportunity to be God's covenant partner in prayer. God's will does not just unfold automatically. God's will unfolds through human beings who surrender to him in response to his grace. And that begins in prayer, and I'm thinking maybe it probably continues in prayer and ends in prayer, that there's an exhortation in the scripture to devote ourselves to prayer. In Colossians 4.2, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In Acts, when the apostles were being overwhelmed with the other responsibilities of administrating the church, that's when they established deacons so that the elders could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, there's the famous exhortation to pray without ceasing. That Bible verse in 1 Thessalonians inspired a book called The Way of the Pilgrim, which is an anonymous uh, 19th century Russian work um, that talks about this peasant's journey to learn how to pray continually. And at the beginning, uh, it says this, it says, Understand that the heavenly light regarding continuous prayer is not arrived at by worldly wisdom and superficial curiosity. On the contrary, it is discovered in the spirit of poverty and simplicity of heart through active experience. The truth is that though there is neither a shortage of sermons nor treatises of various writers about prayer, for the most part, these discourses are based on mental analysis and on natural considerations rather than active experience. And so I leave you with that. Uh, I think it's much easier in my experience to read books and to listen to podcasts and even to record podcasts than it is to go and pray uh, because praying requires faith. You know, reading a book, uh, even listening or recording a podcast takes less faith than prayer. To go and commit time to pray really requires faith. And I think... Um, You know, the Bible says it's our faith that pleases God. So I will leave you with that. And uh, may the Lord bless you. And I just want to exhort you to recognize that God wants to partner with you. God wants you to be his covenant partner in prayer. God is sovereign, but that does not mean that his will is just going to come to pass automatically. We get the honor of being his covenant partners. We get the honor 
of participating with him in prayer to see his kingdom manifested on the earth. God bless you. Thanks for listening.